if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to get them out and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. And as we get um, started in, in this part of our service, I'd ask if you would stand with me for the reading of the Lord. I'm going to start reading, if you back up just a few verses from chapter 5, I'm going to start reading uh, at the end of chapter 4 in verse 32. Luke writes this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you uh, before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for your land? Yes, she said, that, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. It's the word of the Lord. We say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Some of you are saying, man, I'm glad you're going to talk about that. <laughs> but remember, we don't skip over texts that may provide a little challenge and difficulty for us. We might as well address them if they're in the book, right? So, you may have seen 
Uh, you ever follow the, the lists that are published? You see them on Facebook and the internet a lot, like the top 10 lists or things like that. Um, I kind of find it interesting whenever I see um, the best and worst lists. Have you seen those? Like the 10 best places to vacation, the 10 worst cities to live in Washington, um, the, the top careers. I had to click on that one and looked at it just to see where does pastor fit on that list. And it's not the bottom. Um, you know, we're a little lower than halfway. I, I, my job does rank slightly higher than a pest control what? specialist. <laughs> Look it up. It's on the internet. It must be true, right? <laughs> well, you know, there's... Uh, Fashion does this. There's like the best dressed and the worst dressed. Have you ever seen those? Well, I got a couple pictures for you. So these are the best dressed guys at the 2018 Grammys. They were, they were voted best dressed, yeah. And then the next one is um, the best dressed female, Meghan Markle there, kind of elegant. Of course, then there's the other end of the spectrum, and so this was voted the worst dressed. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little poke, yes, but you have to admit, that's pretty gaudy, isn't it? That's hard to watch on TV right there. I couldn't resist. <laughs> Our text today gives us the best and the worst in this new Jesus-following movement. Um, we read a story about two competing kingdoms that are alive and active. There's the present earthly, sin-filled kingdom, and there is the spirit-filled reign of God. And the two are at play in the text, and they are still at play uh, in the present. If you think, if we, if we go back into Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people and Peter got up and, and preached that sermon on Pentecost, uh, we, we remember that he was talking about how it will be in the last days. In other words, what Peter was saying is what is taking place with the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit is that the last days have already begun. And Christians, the church, this early fellowship of believers, well, we're all signposts. We're directional signs for people to the coming reality of the kingdom that's already been started with the resurrection of Jesus. And so, if we are living into the kingdom that is breaking in now, then we start living in the ways that God is going to make it when he comes and makes all things new. It makes sense, right? So we should be living into the reality of God's kingdom, so working for justice, 
uh, promoting the peace of God, uh, sharing his love and grace with the world around us. Those are things that are part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We live as an example. We live as somebody who's already living in the the reign of God. And so Luke has described for us this spirit-filled group of believers, and they're now referred to as an ecclesia, and we talked about that term a few weeks ago, which means an assembly of people who continue to gather. Um, And it's a group of people where it was evident that the love of God was at work in their lives, a group of people who embodied the coming reality of God's kingdom, a a group of people who, Luke says, were all of one heart. And so the challenge at the first part of this is just simply asking the question, which reality, which kingdom are we living into? At the end of chapter 4, the last two verses, Luke gives us a picture of the best. He gives us this positive image of how the Spirit was working in the the lives of a specific person. And so he moves from the generalities of many people would do this to a specific example in Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus. We learned that his nickname means son of encouragement. He becomes a well-known person in the early church. Uh, Luke, uh, he kind of focuses our attention on him, I think 23 different times in the book of Acts. So we will, Barnabas will come up as a regular part of our conversation as we work our way through the book. We're told that Barnabas had a field and he sold this field and he donated all of the money. Now it might sound a bit odd, But in those days, they didn't have like 401k plans that they could cash out. Their wealth was uh, held in uh, property and and such things. And so to be able to uh, donate in a way that would help people in need, they they would cash out some of their investments, which were land. If you you remember um, the story of the prodigal son, when the young man approached his dad and said, hey, I, I want my inheritance now. Dad had to go and sell property so that he could cash his son out. So this is a common kind of a thing. And it's not, it's not all that uncommon in today's day and age either. There's, there are many people who choose to leave estate gifts to charitable organizations and to churches so when they, when they die that some of their estate goes to help um, further the cause of God's kingdom in the world. And Barnabas was, we need to remember that Barnabas was not required to do any of this. He didn't, he didn't have to sell this field. This was something that was a voluntary choice. And his act of, we would say, radical generosity at this point, this act of generosity demonstrated how much the spirit of Jesus was, was working in his life. And he loved, you could say that, that Barnabas loved Jesus and people more than he loved his stuff. He wasn't interested in getting credit for this. He was interested in just giving it 
in a spirit of humility. He was willing to lay down. He held on to his stuff loosely. He was willing to lay it down so that other people could be picked up. So we read the account of Barnabas, and I'd have to say, Lord, may we be a people who look for ways to give generously, to give sacrificially, to give gladly through our regular tithing to the church and in other, all sorts of other ways. And may the truth of Jesus' resurrection and a deeper understanding of God's grace at work in our lives make us Barnabas-like servants. And may this kind of generosity lead us into a wonderful, uncommon experience of unity. That's Luke's picture of the best of what was going on in this fellowship. But we turn the page into chapter 5. And there's the other hand of the story. I like that Luke is honest about the struggles of the early church. That he didn't just leave us these few verse summaries at the end of a couple chapters that makes the, this new fellowship look, you know, idealistic. And all, everything is all rosy and happy. People are cared for. Luke gives us the measure of reality of living in this world. He doesn't hide their faults. Even in the most spirit-filled congregations, the reality of sin still exists. Because every congregation is made up of people. God gives us a free will to choose how we will live and respond to him. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is both devastating and awfully sobering. These two resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they acted out of their own selfishness. Uh, We see that the devil is at work in them. Now, so far in Acts, and as we move forward, we'll, we'll see two different kinds of ways that Satan is trying to take this church down. So far, we've only seen attacks from the outside, preaching and the officials come and you know and they no don't do that you can't talk about Jesus and the resurrection just zip it guys don't do that so the attacks are from the outside satan thinks well maybe enough pressure enough fear enough threat and maybe they'll disband it's not happening and so now luke shows us that Satan has other tools in his belt than just pressure from the outside. He starts to work his way into the human heart, into the inside of this fellowship. Hey, if I can convince some of these believers, maybe I can get my foot into breaking this thing up from the inside. On the surface, as we read it, It appears that Barnabas and Ananias are doing the same thing, but upon closer examination, we know that their motives are in two totally different places. 
Ananias and Sapphira, they were, they were posers. They had fake piety. They, they saw how people loved and admired Barnabas for his generosity, and they envied Barnabas. We want to look as good as him. Look at, look at how the people are. Oh, they just think Barnabas is so awesome. I want to feel like that too. Motivated by jealousy, the desire to look good with their peers. They wanted the admiration of the community, but they didn't want to do any of the hard work to actually earn it. Doesn't seem like they were all that interested in helping other people. They were interested in helping themselves. So Ananias and his wife, they conspire together to sell a field and give the proceeds to the church. But we're told that they schemed to keep some of the money back. They kept back some of the money. The, the Greek word for kept back there is the same word that you would use for embezzle. Uh, this is premeditated deception on their part. This is something that they carefully planned out to make themselves look good. So when they brought the money to Peter, it wasn't like they outright said, here's the whole amount, but the way that they gave it suggested that they were giving everything that they earned from selling this field, hey, we're giving it all. So it looked like they were doing that. They led people to believe that. Now, remember, they're not obligated to sell a field and give the money away. Luke carefully puts it in the text that this was totally voluntary. So it was your field to start with, yes. It was your right to sell it, yes. You could have given even part of the money, would have been fine. The sin here is that you made us think, you led us to believe, you didn't correct us when we thought it was the whole amount. Hmm, deception. See what they did. They cheapened the actions of the other believers. The other believers who were motivated by the power of God's grace at work in their lives, what Ananias and Sapphira did is just totally cheapen that. Their, their deception was... Uh, was an affront to the generosity, the joyful generosity. The people were happy about being able to support one another. It's an affront to that generosity that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so now we see that the progress of the mission of this uh, group of people is now starting to be derailed by the sin within the fellowship. They lied about it. You know, lying has... Lying has become a very commonplace thing in our society. So much so that when you hear many people talk, uh, you don't know who's telling the truth anymore. It's difficult. From top leadership down, when lying becomes a practice, we're going to become desensitized to it. And it's just not right. It's deception. It starts with little white lies. You know, what's the big deal? Does it, does it really matter if I tell you that I went fishing 
and I caught a 25-pound Chinook when it was only a 15-pound Chinook? Does it really matter? Uh, Does it really matter if I take credit for something that someone else did? Let me give you an example. If, If Brian was at home, he walked through to ki- the kitchen to find his fourth cup of coffee for the day. <laughs> and he, um, that's a true story. Uh, and he walks by the sink and he notices that there's a big pile of dishes in the sink. And he says, you know, it would really bless my mom if I took the time and I washed these dishes. And so, after a few sips of coffee, he fills the sink, hot soapy water, washes the dishes, puts them in the drying rack, and then he goes off into his room to play the piano. And I come into the kitchen, and I wash my hands, and so I'm holding the towel at the moment that Lisa walks into the kitchen. And she says, thank you so much for doing those dishes. Now, what could I do? You're welcome, honey. I love you so much. What's the big deal with that? It happens, it happens a lot, doesn't it? Not in our house. I'm, I'm teasing there. Uh, in our society, in your life, it's easy. Sometimes circumstances, circumstances set themselves up so that you can take credit for somebody else's good deed. And then you're left with, what am I going to do? Is it really that big a deal if I let people go on believing whatever it is? See, folks, it does does matter. Living a life of honesty and integrity and truth is critically important. It's become so easy to lie in our culture without, because we don't consider the damage that it, and the consequences to other people and to ourselves when we start spreading, start spreading false things like that. We become desensitized to it. God doesn't take this lightly. If you write it, you can write it down. Proverbs 6, 16, it says, uh, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Speech is in that list, things that God absolutely abhors. See, the story of Barnabas and the story of Ananias and Sapphira are connected together for a reason. Luke uses them to show us the battle that is raging between the life, living a life in the spirit and living a life in, in the flesh. Life in the spirit is dem- demonstrated in, in the passage we read as a generosity that's motivated by the powerful grace of God. And Ananias, on the other hand, they display what selfishness and pride and deception will do to you. And the consequences of their sin 
is severe. So there's a couple observations that I have. One is that your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. You, you cannot hide your sin from God. You can't deny that there are things that you do that fall into the category of sin, which is a violation of what God has asked of us. Peter says that Ananias and Sapphira lied not just to people, but to God, to the Holy Spirit. And sin cannot reside in the presence of a holy God. He takes our sin against other people as a personal offense against him. And I think these days that maybe, maybe we don't take the holiness of God all that seriously. Like we might sing about it, we might speak it out loud, but in real practice, maybe we have an issue there. And see, when we don't take the holiness of God seriously, when we don't recognize that our sin is an affront to him, it's an offense against God, the holiness of the sin cannot reside in the presence of a holy God. If, if we minimize that, then we start tending to minimize our own sin. You know, it's, all, it's not all that big a deal. I can stretch the truth here. I can stretch the truth there. I can tell a bold-faced lie. And if I tell it long enough and loud enough and I tweet it enough times, people will start believing it. Actually, it's a big deal. See, when we minimize our sin, what we are really saying is that we don't value what Jesus went through to suffer and die on the cross that we could be forgiven. It seems like Ananias and Sapphira, they were, well, they were bound by their pride. They were bound by this selfish desire to look good in front of others, and, and they were letting this sin motivate their actions and deny the work of the Holy Spirit. It's like they were telling God, hey, you know what? We've got this on our own. We, we can handle this ourselves. I, we don't, thanks for that sacrifice, but uh, we don't really don't need it. And that's an affront to God. And God could not allow these sorts of motives to pollute the powerful work of his spirit that was happening in this early group of believers. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, calls Ananias out and rebukes him. Now, how would, how would Peter know? The Holy Spirit will prompt him. I suppose it was, it was surprising to Ananias when Peter called him out because he thought this was something that was totally hidden. You see, your sin isn't always as hidden as you think it is. Sometimes your sin while you think you're doing a really good job of disguising it and hiding it in the closet, the deep recesses of your heart, and how nobody will ever find out, sometimes your sin is way more obvious to other people than, than you think. But because you've deceived yourself, you don't see it. Notice that, I want you to notice that Peter does not pronounce any kind of judgment on Ananias, does he? He just says, hey, you, why did you do this? Yet Ananias 
he falls down dead. And we would say that would be an implicit result of his sin. Was it judgment? Was it a heart attack? Did he stroke out? Uh, was it triggered by being found out and completely undone and shamed and embarrassed in public? The text doesn't say, does it? it all, all it says is both of them just died. Luke, remember, reading this, Luke doesn't say that God killed them. I think it's safe to say, though, that the consequences of their sin are deadly. And the Bible is clear for us that the wages, the consequences of our sin is going to be death at some point, a spiritual death. There will be consequences to the sin that we hold on to if we don't address it before God. Peter told Ananias that Satan had filled his heart. Satan is the deceiver. He's good at that sort of thing. He tries to convince us that um, sin is right and God is wrong. All the way back to when he approached Adam and Eve in the garden. His question was, hey, did God really say that? Causing them to doubt. He plants those seeds of deception. He, he, he actually accused God of deceiving them. Did God actually mean that? Did he, do you think he meant that? Did you think he actually said that? When he approached Jesus in the wilderness, he, he tempted Jesus to do all sorts of things. Putting the opportunity in front of Jesus, hey, does God really want you to go through with all of that? You could take these different shortcuts to glory. And you ever notice that Satan doesn't tempt you to do things that are beyond your grasp, beyond your ability to achieve. Things that are maybe unrealistic. Satan tempts you to do things that are within your power to control. Because if just a trivial example. I went to the Seattle Boat Show a year ago. And I wasn't in the market for a boat, but went along with a friend to just look at all of the monstrosities that were there. And we're walking around boats that cost two, three, four, five million dollars. They're gorgeous. I thought about putting in a requisition to the church board. Hey, we could do a lot of cool ministry with this. That lasted like two seconds. <laughs> I wasn't tempted at all by those boats, even though you could see how really neat it would be to be able to float around on one of those. But it was so beyond my means that I'm not tempted by that. But there were other places in that show that had much smaller craft that, you know, it would have really stretched our budget thin, but if I had really thought about it, I could be tempted into something like that. Satan will get you with things that you're actually able to achieve and control. That's why deception is so deadly. 
Deception is, will wreck your life. It will lead to brokenness. It's the opposite of unity. You, you can't be deceptive and have true unity. It's impossible. This kind of so the sin of deception, it creates three fractures in your life. Deception will fracture your relationship with God. Deception will uh, fracture your own soul. And deception will fracture your relationship with other people. So deception fractures your relationship with God. When you sin against others, you're sinning against God. You might think that you are hiding your sin, but you can't hide your sin. If you write down or flip over to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's the word of God. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who must give an account. God sees it all. He knows your heart. And when you willfully sin and you harbor that and you keep pressing on, it fractures your relationship with him. But it also works its way in and it fractures your own soul. This deception, this inner turmoil that, we, that, we'll fa- we will, that you face, um, it's going to do violence, it's going to do damage in your own heart. See, lying is confusing because the more you lie, the more you have to remember. And it becomes confusing. It, it, it'll all unravel at some point. And so you're constantly worried about, is it going to unravel today? So maybe ask yourself, do I need to quit pretending about anything? Are, are you pretending to be something more than you are? We need to guard our integrity. We must make truth a priority in, in every aspect of our lives, to cultivate this lifestyle of transparency. And we're responsible to examine our own motives, and when we don't like what we see, we present them to God and have him help us do the work on this. The psalmist David, he wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. See, when David went through his sin with Bathsheba and he was trying to cover it up, it tore him apart. And if you look at Psalm 32, his, his conscience was so tortured that it made him physically ill. Nathan confronted him, called him out. And David had no choice but to say, I did it. And later in Psalm, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And God will do it. But deception also fractures unity with with other people. The Holy Spirit is doing a work inside us to conform us into the image of Jesus. And the more we look like Jesus, the more we're going to value one another and, and remain committed to the mission that he has called us to fulfill. The unity we're talking about is having the same mind about something. 
this early group of people, they believed in the gospel message. That's what was unifying them. They had the same mind in that they understood what mattered most. Have you ever noticed that most of the things that cause division in groups, in churches, in families, is that you get caught up about things that usually really don't matter? See, the people were unified because they believed the gospel, and that's what mattered most. When we're divided, it tends to be over things that in the whole scheme of things it probably doesn't even matter. Luke says they were of one heart. They had a great spirit of love that filled the entire church. Not a sweet, sappy, mushy kind of love, but a love that valued other people and was willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the other. And deception, folks, works against all of it. Deception will rip that apart. If you're the one who is lying and deceiving other people, you really don't value unity at all. You only value yourself. And if you're the one who's being deceived, if somebody's lying to you, what what you are believing in them, you're you're leaning on a lie. And it's going to fall down. It's going to unravel. And everything's going to crash. There's no room for deception within the body of Christ. There's, there's no room for deception, period. Sin is deadly. There's devastating consequences now and for eternity, but the good news, folks, is there's an answer. The good news is that there's, there's grace. The good news is that there's forgiveness and mercy for you. That's why, that's why Jesus came, to forgive sins. All of the things that our baptismal candidates affirmed, that Jesus came to die, and that's enough to cover the penalties of our sins, that we can li- move on from that point of forgiveness and we can live into a new life, freedom from the pull and the sway of our old sinful life. So I would challenge you to Start living into truthfulness in every part of your life. No more white lies. No more letting people believe things about you that aren't true. No more false pretenses. And if you noticed at the end of this section, it says that great fear seized the whole church. I'm going to have our worship team come back because... The great fear seizing the whole church led them into worship. It led them to ponder and consider the holiness of God, and they were in awe of this holy one. Whatever happened to these two, Ananias and Sapphira, was was viewed as divine judgment. The people recognized that God takes sin seriously. They found themselves in awe, they found themselves humbled, and they cried out, have mercy on us, Lord. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord, but have mercy on us. Bring us to realize our sin, Father, and give us the humility and courage to admit it in your presence. I invite you to stand as we sing. A story like this will 
well, it confronts you right where you're at. It uncovers some things that may be difficult to wrestle with in the Bible, and that's okay. The important thing right now is to recognize that unaddressed sin in your life fractures your relationship with God, creates turmoil in yourself and, and with other people. And when you recognize that, I pray that in these moments that the, the awe and maybe even the fear that might be seizing and gripping your heart right now, you could take that to God and address it with Him in these moments.